Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Scheuermann, CEO of Arch Systems, a machine data and analytics company that's raised $25 million in funding. Andrew, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. Excited to be here. Yeah, and I should have asked at the start, do you prefer to do this in English or Chinese? Because I was watching some YouTube videos of you, and I see that you're learning Chinese. <laughs> that's funny. You've done your research. Yeah, English is good. I, I can get around in Chinese and German a bit, but yeah, I've, uh, definitely... English is my language. <laughs> nice. What prompted you to want to learn Chinese and how's that going so far? Oh, it's going very well. I really love the language. What prompted me was a number of things. I live in the Bay Area, live in Cupertino. My daughter goes to a uh, Chinese daycare. She speaks Chinese better than I do already. But I mean, the other thing is the market that I'm in. So I, I serve manufacturing and it's a global market all over the world. So kind of it was one of the things I love about company and my job, China is a huge part of manufacturing. And so we work with a lot of folks in China and just being able to understand that culture and the people better is a huge part. Nice. That's so cool. I remember that video years ago when Mark Zuckerberg was learning Chinese and just seeing him speak Chinese just hurt my brain a little bit. It, it was mind blowing and very cool. So that's, that's awesome. You're on that journey. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Now, if we can just take a step back and let's just go with a, a quick high level summary of who you are and a bit more about your background, that would be awesome. Yeah. So my name is Andrew Scheuermann. I'm uh, my background is, I guess, in between science and business all along. I'm a dad of two awesome kids. I'm a husband of an awesome engineer, investor, entrepreneur herself. And yeah, I, I don't really have too much time for hobbies, but when I do, I love, you know, writing music and fencing. So those are kind of different, you know, aspects of who I am as a person. I started Arch specifically about seven, eight years ago now, I, I did my PhD at Stanford in engineering. I was a builder of advanced machines, uh, did my degrees in material science, built a world record electronics device. And I also helped to build Startex, which is a top startup accelerator, kind of like Y Combinator. Maybe some of the folks are familiar with that. I joined when I was at Stanford. It was a spin out of, of a student group. And uh, we got a, a seed investment effectively in this like nonprofit educational idea from the Kauffman Foundation. And started a fund with Stanford at one point that did $200 million out of the endowment. So I got kind of at the same time as I was doing my engineering education, building advanced machines, doing semiconductor electronic stuff, I was helping a whole bunch of other amazing entrepreneurs start their companies, kind of rubbing shoulders with really cool people. Evan Spiegel, founder of Snapchat, was on the staff in the early days. DoorDash founders were in one of the programs that I led when they were just kind of starting with the idea. So that was awesome. So I was obviously bit by the bug of entrepreneurship, generally speaking, loved empowering and helping other people, and then ended up co-founding Arch. Been at it for about eight years now. Absolutely love it. Combined kind of the advanced, you know, machine building, understanding machines background that I had with overall entrepreneurship and bringing a software and AI solution to market. And would a younger version of Andrew be surprised that you've ended up in this position today and that you're a founder and entrepreneur and CEO? Or did you always, you know, think that something like this could happen? It depends on how far you go back. So yeah, if you just go to, you know, start of my master's degree, I was already like, at that point, I was like, that's where I want to be. But if you go 
to my bachelor's degree, much less if you go back to like high school, middle school. I, I never, I never thought about anything like this. I grew up with a Navy and then a, a space program dad. So we kind of moved all over to the different space programs. I lived in Seattle, I was born in Seattle, but I, I grew up mainly in Alabama, Texas, and Florida at the different like space centers or launch pad sites. And, um, there weren't necessarily that many entrepreneurs or people around me that modeled that. So I was always really interested in engineering and technical subjects. There was a one point in my life I just wanted to play music and have a rock band, right? <laughs> and then I, I was kind of one of those people when I went to college that like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a lot of energy. I love technical subjects, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I went to graduate school because I love to learn and I was studying material science. So yeah, it definitely wasn't until later that I really figured out that building a company was something I was really excited to do. Nice. Super cool. And a couple of questions just to better understand what makes you tick and, and where some of that inspiration comes from. So is there a specific CEO that you admire? And if so, who is it and what do you admire about them? Yeah. So on the, the yeah, CEO side, and sometimes people ask like the founder side as well, like on the CEO side, I have to go with Andy Grove from Intel. You know, the, uh, he wrote all the, the books like High Output Management. A lot of these fundamental ideas like one-on-one, -on -one, 360 stuff comes from that. Um, and John Doerr that worked with him went to, you know, Kleiner Perkins wrote the kind of OKRs method for Google. So I love Andy Grove's original stuff as a CEO. He was CEO of Intel. So he always really inspired me. On the founder side, people ask that as well. I don't quite have as many like founder icons. I really love studying like cultures. So I really love the book built to last and like good degree kind of the Jim Porras, Collins and Porras like books. And, you know, I, I love like reading about Amazon for efficiency and strategy or Apple for user experience or Siemens and GE for the fact that those companies like built crazy hard things that are still defensible like hundred years later, which is totally amazing. So yeah, I, I try a collection. I made, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are first principles people. And that's like a really important way to see the world, like kind of a physics, like, you know, what's fundamentally happening in the world. And I studied uh, chemistry before I studied material science. And chemistry is kind of a pattern matching thing. Like you, you understand all these patterns, the functional groups and what tends to happen. And there is a pattern matching way to understand a lot of the deep. And I studied economics too. So I was a chemistry and economics major. Both are like pattern matching disciplines. So I think for that reason, I also really love studying kind of cultures and communities as much as I like studying kind of individual CEOs and like what that's led to at a given business. And I think Elon Musk is the one who really blew up first principles thinking, or at least those are the stories that I've read. And I think that's where it really spread from a lot. Can you give us an example of you applying first principles thinking to a business problem that you were facing at some point, or just maybe an objective that you were trying to achieve as a company? Yeah. And maybe I'll contrast that with like pattern matching thinking, for example. So my co-founder comes from a physics background. I come from a chemistry background. So we actually love talking about like first principles versus pattern matching and the power of both of them and the limitations of both of them. So like first principles thinking, where have I used that specifically? So we're a company that pulls data out of factory machines to do predictive analytics and understand how to fundamentally improve a factory. There's a lot of things there that follow patterns. All of machine learning is kind of like pattern matching, right? But on the other hand, you're digging into a given machine and you're asking like, what's actually possible? So a lot of times our customers will say, hey, could you predict, you know, X, Y, Z? For a specific example, they'll say, could you predict why this machine is down for, you know, every hour of the day? And, you know, from a first principles perspective, you'll say, 
Well, I understand exactly the data inside this machine and what is or is not possible from any statistical algorithm. Like, do you want to predict why there was a maintenance problem? I can predict maintenance for you based on, you know, all the sensor data. Like there are first principles in the data that should allow me to predict a maintenance problem. But on the other hand, if your machine is down because you ran out of materials or, you know, your team just decided to change the schedule that day and they're not even running, there is no first principles in the data to predict that. That's just like very clear. Like, you know, maybe if you have a scheduling system or if you have a material management system, I could mine that. And it's so funny how that's not intuitive to so many people in the factory that, you know, AI is this black box. And so they're like, oh, I have no idea what it can do or not do. So they always ask. So anyways, that's not on business strategy. That's on product. But it's a very practical like combination of the product that we build as a pattern matching product. And it's so important to understand the physics of the data to be able to know what kind of results, you know, you will or won't be able to give customers. Mm, Super fascinating. Now, can you take me back to the early days? You said, what year did you launch? It was about eight years ago? That's right. Yep. Take me back to eight years ago. What were those early conversations like with your co-founder? Oh, man. So one big, you know, arc of our story is that we pivoted a lot, but we had one particular very large pivot. So the very first version of Arch actually originally called Well Done Technology, but we adopted the name Arch pretty early, was a modular IoT platform. So this was 2015, 2016. It was kind of a year or two after IoT platform generally hit peak hype, but we hadn't quite got that message. We were still like, we still thought there was a generic like IoT platform to be built across like all the industry across the board. And we had this modular hardware solution that was kind of competing with like Samsung had a product called Arctic and Relayer before they pivoted had these like a blocks product. And there, so there were a bunch of these like modular electronics projects and that ended up not being successful. We pivoted the business to become, you know, a data and analytics company manufacturer. I, I could tell that whole story in more detail if we want to go into it. But your, your question sure. about what was the conversation with the co-founder? So you know, early on, we were both doing our PhDs at Stanford. I was an experimentalist. He's a theoretician. I guess the funny story about how we got to be working together, we were already really good friends and we had spent some time living in the basement of a house together. He was prototyping these electronics and other things. I was working at Sternix. And one day he was thinking about ways to expand the business ideas that he was working on with these electronics. And me with my StartX hat, my kind of helping other companies accelerate and, and try to get started, I was like, oh, you need, a, you need another co-founder. You need a business partner to come in and help you take this to market and think about the right way to go. And he was like, yeah, I do. And, and I was like, I'm really good at helping people find you know, co-founders and build teams. You know, Maybe I could help you do that. He was like, oh, it'd be awesome. And so we actually engaged first on this journey of me trying to help him find somebody to pursue this particular idea that he had. And yeah, long story short was we had conversation after conversation and kept kind of figuring out that we were each other's like yin and yang. And we weren't just friends. We were in a business partner sense. We were each other's yin and yang. The things that he was worried about, I had an answer for. The things that I was worried about, he had an answer for. And long story short was yeah, one day I, I'm like, oh, I'm so scared this is going to hurt our friendship. But I send him an email and I go, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think I want to be the business partner that I was trying to help you find. And he was like, so glad you said that. That's what I want too. <laughs> and, uh, and so we ended up partnering and starting on the journey. Wow. That's super cool. And then do you want to expand on what you mentioned as well there? Yeah. So the first company has its own very cool story. I'll try to tell it quickly and get to kind of the second company. 
my co-founder, Tim Burke, before I was working with him, he was working with another colleague, Austin McKee, and, and some others in a nonprofit called Well Done International. And they had a grant from the World Bank to try to monitor wells in Tanzania specifically to begin with. So, you know, think about industrial, think about analytics of the many, you know, GEs over here saying, you know, we're going to digitize the jet engine, predict everything that happens so a jet engine never breaks. On the, you know, the other side of the world, the World Bank's working with my co-founder and these other colleagues saying, you know, what if we could predict when a well is going to break and people aren't going to have drinking water anymore? You know, could we put a really simple sensor and a cell phone together, make it just as cheap as possible and solve this like really important problem? You know, one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know, sustainable water for all. So really awesome mission. They're working on that. And out of the side of that springs this idea started by Tim Burke and Austin McKee that like, could we have a company that generally sold sensors and got data from machines. It was kind of an early form of this, but the focus was on the modular electronics and the building blocks. So that's when the story that I just told you happens when I meet Tim and we start working together on this project. And it quickly evolved from wells in you know, a rural setting to wells in California and trying to monitor irrigation systems. And then that evolved to you know, power plants and all kinds of different things. The unifying footprint initially was these modular electronics. So we were actually a hardware developer company. It was like, you can make different building blocks of hardware and we have APIs. You are customers. You're going to be the developers that are going to use our data and build, you know, different sort of AI apps. And that, you know, seems like it's going to work amazingly well for open AI with their like LLM models. It did not work at all for us with this idea of hardware to kind of data mine for you and, and you would build something on top. And the reason it didn't work was because our customers were largely, you wanted to sell a large enterprise and all of them would say, I want to build my own AI models. I want to build my own AI models, but they didn't necessarily have the capacity. They didn't have the team. Like talent is so hard to come by. So they were all telling us, you're doing the right thing. I need data out of my machines and I want to build all the cool stuff with that data. But none of them really succeeded in doing that. And they didn't even have the software developers hired and they weren't hiring them. So it took us a while to figure out why that wasn't working because your customers like telling you, yes, you're doing the right thing. But they're, we're stuck in industrial. Everybody talks about POC hell, proof of concept hell, where your big customer that is hard to understand tells you you're doing something good and you're just stuck in pilot mode and you can totally die. And we would have died there. We had really not that much revenue. It was pilot revenue. At the end of all this, I think we got to like 300, 350K. You know, not bad for pilot revenue, but nothing significant. And none of that was good revenue. It was all pilot revenue, right? And so we totally would have died on the line at that point, except that all of these enterprise customers were saying, you know, the end problem we're trying to solve, you know, we're trying to get the data out of these machines, do analytics, and then optimize X. Right. And X was different if this was a factory or it was an irrigation system or it was a power plant. But that thing that they were trying to optimize, X, it was really valuable to improve it. And so it was clear to us that you could build companies here. It was just that the, the original kind of version of the go to market was just totally different work and we needed to verticalize. So that is the big pivot that we made. We picked manufacturing of all the different things that we could have picked. And then we got hyper focused. So inside of manufacturing, we picked forever only discrete manufacturing. So today, Arch Systems is a data and analytics company that improves discrete manufacturing. And within discrete, we focused on the high-tech end of it, electronics, 
electronics products, electronics assembly. And when we finally got that focused on a vertical specific solution, we then, we built the whole thing, right? We built the analytics and the intelligence and we were able to start providing awesome optimizations inside of our customers. We made a, a really key partnership with any entrepreneurs out there want to reach out to me. I've told this story many times that uh, we've done some really big strategic partnerships. So we worked early on with a Flex, which a Flex, Jable, Foxconn are kind of known as some of the biggest manufacturers in the world. All of those, all the large electronics manufacturers are critical customers and partners for ours. In particular, we worked with Flex early on. We almost did free work for them for a long time, and they essentially gave us access to all of their factories worldwide. Really kind of incredible deal for both sides. Both took a really big risk on each other. And with all of those factories and all of that data, we were able to build a really incredible offering that was optimizing the efficiency of the factories. So I'll pause there. But that was kind of the first story hardware failed, pivoted into a vertical specific approach. And then that was about 2020, early 2020, when I think it took three years, a little more than three years, and that first kind of business restarted. And now it's been a little more than three years since that pivot. And uh, we've made incredible traction since then. We're connected to close to 10,000 machines and 100 plus factories, 15 countries, working with a lot of the, the biggest names out there with a product that now delivers a lot of ROI to factories. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And I'd love to zoom in on that decision of going all in on manufacturing and, and making that your niche. Because I think all the founders listening in and, and all the founders out there, I think everyone generally knows that you know you win when you can pick a niche and really serve a persona and add as much value as possible to that persona and then move on. But I think when you have a company in the early stages, it's really scary to make that call and make that decision of this is who we're going to serve. So what was that? like for you? And, and how did you make that decision? And what was going on inside your head? You know, did you have those feelings of being a little bit worried of, is this the right niche? Is this the wrong niche? Or what was going on there behind the scenes of that decision? Yeah. I mean, it's so difficult, you know, and we, some companies are luckier than us and some are less lucky for sure. Right. Sometimes like everybody has to make these like focusing points in their company's life or they don't succeed. Like I could have imagined a company like ours that was like, hey, we should be a manufacturing analytics company. And that was generally a good thing to be. But they, you know, they built the wrong kind of analytics first, right? Or they made a hypothesis that analytics A will create value, but it didn't. But then, you know, okay, let's try B, C, or D. In our case, we pivoted the market, the product, the positioning from horizontal developer to like vertical analytics. Like we pivoted almost every single piece of it. Um how were we able to do that? So we were, you know, much more unlucky than people that start their business, you know, right next to a great product market fit, but, you know, far luckier than people that don't start anywhere near a really valuable signal or, or they're kind of unable to make a pivot and, and, and not get to something that, that is extraordinarily valuable like we've been able to do. Yet, I think the way we were able to do it and make the decision was just that we were keyed in on the value proposition. 
from the beginning. We were really listening to our customers. We were, like Steve Blank says, we were getting outside of the building from day one. Like we were going literally into the fields, putting our boots on when it was agriculture. We were going into the power plants. We were going into the factories. And so in the earlier phase, when we were trying to be a developer platform, we were not just sitting back and saying, use the technology. Like we were going into the field with the enterprise, the software developers that they did have and trying to help them get their own things built, you know, on our platform. And then we ended up knowing the true value of the end customer, you know, as well or better than they did. So when we realized that, you know, our customers weren't going to be able to build their own system, we knew what to do, right? We already kind of understood, you know, why is the efficiency of the factory low? How could you analyze it? How could you give someone a dashboard and alert that helps them improve the shit? So it wasn't like this kind of crazy jump where we shut down the company. It doesn't even make sense, right? And so we followed the value again. And then how do we decide on manufacturing and electronics versus the others? You know, combination of two things. The part that was systematic was we did study kind of the market sizes across the board. Manufacturing was one of the absolute biggest markets. The inefficiency gaps that we had seen in these pilots were the largest by far. So both the market size and kind of the acuteness of our product, like how directly it attacked the value that we could bring and the uniqueness, the differentiation that we had. So our modular kind of hardware side had led us to be really good at connecting many different types of machines. And initially the thought was, yeah, we can do irrigation systems, we can do factory machines, we can do machines, you know, in the power plant context. Well, if we had picked like an irrigation system, you know, it's kind of, there's one or two pieces of it, but then that's all there is. When you pick the factory, the factory is full of 10, 50, 100 different kinds of machines there. So actually that exact same skill that our developer platform had, which was going to all the different machines and really rapidly making lots of different versions, you know, produce data, actually had a great fit with our skills. So big market, big need, and connection with the differentiation that, you know, the tech investment we had made provided was there. And so that's why, while it was a big pivot, there was no question that we were continuing the exact same company because it was also true that kind of we saw the connection with everything we had done, the value of it, you know, this was needed to take us to the next stage. So anyways, altogether, that helped us double down and make that decision. And can you talk to us about how long it took for you to know that that pivot was going to work? Well, (laughs) a long time. And, you know, I bet a lot of other entrepreneurs out there can resonate with this, that like, you know, right now we're like, well, on our path, we're scaling maybe very rapidly here towards the 10 million ARR point. And I mean, even now I still, like maybe even when we're at 30 million, 50 million ARR, I will still be like, you know, is it exactly right? Like, you know, we hired a product person recently and I told her that, um, you know, I don't think you ever have 100% product market fit. And she was like, thank you. I'm so tired of, you know, entrepreneurs telling me they 100% have product market fit. There's nothing else to do here besides build features. And I'm like, no, no way. Like always reevaluating that. So in that regard, I would say, I still don't know for sure. And I don't think you ever do, but I would say we took about a year after we made the focus in before our customers were really responding and they were saying, hey, don't just do five machines, do a hundred, do a thousand, you know? And that was obviously a really strong signal that they wanted us to try. And then obviously the second signal comes from repeats in multiple customers. In some industries, you get that really fast because your customers are small. So you get to a hundred customers. When our industry and industrial, our customers are enormous. 
And in the case of electronics contract manufacturers, there's less than 20, you know, massive ones in the world. <laughs> and so, yeah, it took us another, you know, that first year, kind of 2020 to 2021. And I'd really say to the end of last year, as we were picking up speed and getting to more of the largest, you know, manufacturers in the world, you know, we, we, had, we had a lot of confidence already six months ago, 12 months ago that we were absolutely on the right track. But still, you know, you get more and more big logos, more case studies under your feet, and you have, you know, just yet further confidence that, you know, we're truly digging into something big here. And how do you think about your market category? So I saw on the website, it was described as a marketing optimization platform, I believe. Is that the category? Is it manufacturing analytics? Or how do you think about that market category? Yeah, manufacturing optimization platform. Yeah, it's one of the words that we've used. That's a really good question. So we sell into discrete manufacturing and some people like to call it industry 4.0, you know, the overall kind of trend that we're a part of, you know, fourth industrial evolution. We sell to electronics manufacturers. We sell to discrete manufacturers that make cars, planes, medical devices, et cetera. What do they consider us to be? You know, do they use the word manufacturing optimization platform? No, not really. There's four things that exist in the market that we often get confused with, but we're none of them specifically. And I'm sure a lot of other entrepreneurs can relate to this. It's like when the when an investor asks, you know, who are my competitors? I don't say nobody. I'm totally unique. I don't say that. But I say, which category do you want to pick first? You know, in my case, I say, do you want to compare us to a generic IoT platform? Do you want to compare us to a consultant? Do you want to compare us to what the machine makers are doing themselves? Because they're building really cool software on top of their own machines. Or do you want to compare us to what's called an MES, a manufacturing execution system? Those are my four. And we're not any of those because we're not a consultant. Consultants like do intelligence like manually with people. They come out and do audits. We embed intelligence into our product and run it all the time like a virtual consultant. We're not a generic IoT platform because we don't just collect generic data. We plug in to machines like internal protocols. We write a library of connectors or drivers to them. And then we pre-populate all of the BI applications and analytics for the factory. It's like already built. So we're not one of these generic platforms that like just moves data from A to B and you figure out what to do with it. And likewise, we're obviously not a machine maker. We don't make any machines. We, we do software on top of machines. And we're not MES. Uh, the MES is a software that runs the factory. It connects to the ERP. Usually it helps manage, you know, what job you're doing right now, you know, how much material you need to do it, which person is at the station. So we observe the factory and improve it. That's why we use the word manufacturing optimization platform. My view is that we are in a new category and there's a lot of companies that are in this new category that we're in, which is kind of observability, AI analytics on top of a, a process. And many people are coming out with different words to describe this. You know, optimization platform is one of them. Process mining is like one that Salonis uses. A lot of people just throw out AI for it, but I think that's kind of a, a shortcut. It's not, you know, as helpful. Observability, I think is a great word, but it, it sounds good to IT departments and not to anybody else. <laughs> so that's why we settled on manufacturing optimization platform. Our customers know we're for them, manufacturing. They know what we're doing. We're optimizing it. And yep, we're a platform. You know, we're not a machine. We're not a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand the complexities. I think a lot of startups struggle with that as well. And a lot of founders do. Now, when you're selling 
this platform, who are you typically selling it to? Does it start with IT or is it the CEO? Like who is that lead decision maker that you're speaking to first? So you may, if you are the listeners, you know, have chatted or are in industry 4.0 space, you probably come across this phrase, the ITOT convergence. Everybody likes to talk about this IT being information technology, of course, OT being operations technology, and the convergence being, you know, they're being shoved together. They used to operate in silos. So IT would, you know, buy a CRM or, you know, play around with the ERP and OT would buy some you know, control system, they would buy machines, you know, they would buy sensors, they would buy ovens or whatever they needed to do for their power systems, whatever it was for their specific area. And then ITOT coming together because you have an Internet of Things system, you have a data collection system. So it's collecting data on the OT side. It's providing analytics and value again on the OT side, but it's often managed by IT. The security is approved by IT. IT is probably also helping build custom dashboards, custom things inside of it, helping deploy it. So it bridges both. And so this is like a, a huge dynamic in going to market correctly. So that's a context. And then back to your question, you're like, all right, who buys this? Is it the CEO? Is it the IT? Is it OT? It is all of the above, which is one of the things that makes it challenging. So then the question is, okay, who does it start with? And then how does it end up being everyone? And that also, it can start on the IT side or the OT side. So in our sales, we have pretty sophisticated playbooks to be able to identify in a given customer who are the digitization champions in this particular large, we sell very large enterprise. I guess I should clarify that. It would be different maybe if we sold you know, small factories. We sell factories all hundreds of millions of revenue and up, typically in the billions of revenue. So they're you know, large departments, multiple factories around the world. So it's you know, at this particular company, are the champions in IT? Are they in OT or are they both? You know, finding your initial champion to run the pilot working with them to spider across the organization and build a collection of stakeholders that are going to work with you and get this thing through the door. And it is surprisingly common that they do have to go all the way up to the CEO, COO, even for a pilot approval. So you've got to be really good in this space. You can't be just playing around and, you know, get in the door at, you know, the Flex, Jable, Foxconn, Honeywell, Medtronic, Apples, you know, et cetera, of the world. Like your technology has to be really good. It's got to get high level approval from the beginning and you got to drive a lot of convergence with these different stakeholders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in your journey, as you reflect on the success you've had, and it sounds like you're experiencing a lot of growth, what would you say you've gotten right? If you had to just choose one thing, one tactical thing that you did that was very smart and led to a lot of this success, can you think of anything? You know, I would give a different answer if it was like, focusing on the last year, the last two years. But since we've been focusing on the entire, you know, eight-year journey, I talked about how we've done some strategic partnerships and we were willing to, you know, work for a long period of time with a customer to get things right. In our case, we wanted to go to market and enterprise. And so we structured some deals that were pretty innovative, pretty different, pretty risky, but, you know, caused us to not, you know, have be able to put revenue numbers on the board for a while, but succeed in getting to like a ton of factories and having access to a ton of data and expertise that most companies were not able to do. And I guess, you know, if I'm going to use that uh, phrase, you know, first principles thinking here, <laughs> you know, the first principles of it was that we had measured the utilization, the efficiency of these factories, and we knew how low it was. 
So we knew that if we could build the right analytics tools, we could create massive value. And if you create massive value in industrial, everybody buys it because they, they need that value. It's not a question anymore. It's like you've, you've shown it, you've proven it. And so I think the thing that we did really right is we didn't build vaporware. We didn't go out and try to sell vaporware. We hacked this pilot hell that everybody talks about. We went into the most ultimate pilot hell you've ever seen and go with some key customers. But by doing so, got access to all their data. We got enough funding to kind of last us through that period. And we built a hell of a product that works at the enterprise scale is secure and creates a ton of value. And now we have this just really powerful story that we're bringing out. And now we're being able to fine tune that pilot speed and like tighten it tighter and tighter and get through pilot faster on top of a product that is just a lot more proven than we would have had otherwise. How long are you spending in, what'd you call it, pilot hell? How long are you spending on average there? Well, that ultimate pilot hell was like literally like a three-year period. So like, that's why I said it was like the longest pilot ever. You know, we went into ultimate pilot hell, so to speak. You know, just recently we got through pilot with two multi-billion manufacturers into recurring revenue deals in four months. And our goal is to get that to two to three. But yeah, we went from three years to about eight months on average as we were starting to sell the motion. You know, the most recent ones were about four months. So that's just a dramatic acceleration. And these are large deals. So, you know, four months for the the size of deal that we have is a very good time. Wow, that's amazing. Now, last question here, since we are getting close to being up on time, let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's that big picture vision for the company? There's kind of two dimensions of the future of Arch. One is adding what we call cores to our platform. So a core is the combination of the connection to a bunch of machines. How do you get the rich data out of uh, a specific set of machines and what we call insights, which are this pre-built library of analytics dashboards, predictive analytics that improves it. So today we focus on surface mount technology and injection molding. Plastics is one that we've more recently expanded into. And so in the next three to five years, we'll be in far more than two of these core processes. You know, we don't have an exact order that we've announced, but cores that we study include, you know, CNC machines, they include semiconductor packaging, paint shops, et cetera. So there's like many other areas of discrete manufacturing that we'll be moving into and building these cores on and, and just having just broader and broader coverage. That's the breadth part of the feature. And then there's the depth part of the feature where we make these fundamental technology bets and we've done this already on the machine data platform itself that manages rich event data in the factory. This global OEE system we have that achieves this uh, efficiency scores and understanding of OEE in a scalable way across a large enterprise. The third, we just announced our next technology bet. It's called Action Manager. And it's an intelligent system that helps automatically alert on the conditions happening in the factory, send it to the right people, and lets you build these knowledge playbooks where the factory experts have a place to put all their knowledge, connect it to the signals that are happening in the data. And it allows you to run a factory in a fundamentally more scalable way in a world where you can't get uh, top talent in factories anymore. The next big technology bet in our roadmap is called Process Explorer. And already today, we do some analytics that cross sets of machines. So you combine you know, two, three, four machines data all together and find analytics at the intersection of them. But there's a grander picture of this, which relates to this concept of the digital thread. 
where a given product is built. I mean, think about a car, think about an airplane, how many different pieces have to come together, thousands in some cases. And each one of those is built in a given factory on a given set of three, five, 10 machines. And so you can imagine the threading together of data, just massive kind of organization, but how valuable could it be if eventually you could say whether a given airplane is having a problem, kind of the GE jet engine thing, but but the whole airplane, like where does it go back to in the factory? So our next big technology bet's called Process Explorer. And, you know, we haven't announced all the details of it, but this is where we create some of the, um, the fundamentals for this digital threading across sets of machines and factories as you're building up larger things, not just like an individual circuit board or piece of plastic. Well, that's smart, Andrew. Now you left us wanting more. So we're going to have to bring you on for round two to talk about that when it rolls out. That sounds great. I appreciate it, Brett. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, talk about some of the lessons that you've learned along the way, and really to share what you're building. This has been super fascinating. I really enjoyed the conversation and I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.